The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam, states, When God Almighty intends to inform his servants of a matter pertaining to the realm of the unknown, whether he does it in response to his servant's prayer or on his own, he brings down upon him a sort of unconsciousness, and all of a sudden he loses touch with his surroundings. In that state, he completely loses awareness of even his own existence. Like a diver who plunges down to the bottom of a pool, he's completely submerged and drowned in that state of selflessness, unawareness, and unconsciousness. When, in the end, he breaks surface like a diver with whom he shares his experience to a large degree and is delivered from that state of unawareness, he becomes conscious of a resonance within him. As that resonance fades out, he becomes aware of the presence of a most pleasant, well-balanced, and exquisite communication within him. And this experience is so strange and sublime that it is beyond one's power to describe it in words. It is this experience which reveals to one the existence of a flowing river of inner wisdom. It is through this experience of near unconsciousness that a servant of God receives from God answers to all his supplications in an extremely exquisite and pleasant tone. Then, in response to whatever question takes shape in that state of semi-unconsciousness, God reveals to him such profound knowledge as is impossible for a man to discover otherwise. This in itself results in his gaining greater faith in God and a better understanding of his wondrous ways. Man's supplication and God's response to it by way of manifestation of his being the true object of worship is an experience which enables man to behold God as if he were seeing him in this very world. Thus he begins to belong to both worlds simultaneously. Good morning and welcome to Saturday Morning Live. Uh, you're joined by myself uh, this morning, Shaz alone, and my co-presenters in the studio, Hamza Vanderman and Zishan Mirza. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you doing? Good morning, Shaz. Very well, thanks. Yeah, Hums. Yeah, morning. Very well, thanks. Survived the 40 degrees this week? I quite enjoy that stuff. Yeah, nice and tanned? Well, it's nice. Air conditioning in the office. It's all right. That's a good life, isn't it? Yeah. How about yourself, Z? Yeah, good whole two days of summer. Yeah, been going into the office or? <laughs> yeah, we, we had to go in, actually. Uh, but yeah, it was um, it was quite tricky to deal with, especially on the trains, I'd say. Yeah, that's obviously uh, not the greatest place to be. Thought it was all right. No one did. You, did you go in? Nope. No one was on the trains. Got a nice, got a nice seat. Yeah. Nice breeze. Windows open. Masks on. No masks. No masks. Not no, not bothering. No Case is not bothering you. How many times have you had COVID? Zero. Zero. All oh, right. Okay. Zero. One of the. Uh, I don't want to say dying breed, but one of, one of the, uh, <laughs> one the of lucky the, ones. One of the few left. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. No, and then got a fast train back with aircon. That's lovely. lovely. Surrey lifestyle, eh? <laughs> um, but uh, no, good. So, obviously, we'll touch on climate change a little bit later on. Um, but we are a live and interactive show. Um, you can call us uh, today uh, if you feel the need to voice an opinion, share an opinion, or disagree with my co-presenters. Um, the number to call us on is 0208-687-7878. That's 0208-687-7878. Or at Voice of Islam. UK, uh, that's our Twitter <coughs> handle, or the website www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, so, 
our main topic today is going to be honesty and governance. Obviously, we've seen quite a bit of um, upheaval in the UK parliamentary scene. Um, we're in the midst of a Conservative Party uh, leadership race. Uh, we'll talk about that as well. And we'll talk about some of the traits um, of leadership and what we think is uh, required now because we've gone through such such a turmoil, right, Z? Yeah, absolutely, Chazo. I think um, it's it's really interesting what we're going through at the moment. And I think, you know, the, the two that it's boiled down to, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, I think, you know, it, it shows that we we tend to always try to pick very charismatic leaders and yes. the 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 priority of traits in, mm. in our leadership um I think is is what we should talk about to an extent as well. So sure. I think, you know, in, in with Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, super charismatic. Um they come from backgrounds where, you know, they're fairly well established. It was very similar with David Cameron. He had a PR background. Correct. Um and, you know, the Conservative Party are very, very good at putting out charismatic leaders. Mm. Um, then it gets on to qualities like honesty and integrity um, and how that kind of feeds into governance. And I think that's where, it, you know, it it's slightly trickier then because if you have a leader who's so focused on charisma and PR mm. and image, um, how much room does that leave for honesty and integrity? Absolutely. And we've seen that prevail in government, right? So, um, and you could argue that uh, the the cabinet of Boris Johnson um, were aware of his dishonesty, right? Um, and so, you know, you could argue as well again that Rishi and people like Sajid Javid mm. showed and demonstrated his integrity by resigning. Sure. Um, yeah. And but that's the only time we really get to see it is when they're willing to resign uh, for the benefit of their own career. Which yes. again then yeah. contradicts whether it's a yeah. a move of integrity. Yeah, no, I think um, yeah, I'm mean, absolutely. I think we'll we'll touch on that a bit more as we we go along. Um, that's going to be our sort of main topic. But I think in terms of uh, let's kick off with our news roundup as we normally do. Uh, Hamza, take us away. What's been happening in the world? Well, clearly this week there was the. Uh the, the the big story, the big thing that affected so many people, as you mentioned, Charles, was the, the big heat wave, the record temperatures yep. uh, faced across the UK. For the first time, uh, we had temperatures of over 40 degrees mm. centigrade in the UK. I think the, the most astonishing thing I thought about that I found about that was actually previously the highest temperature recorded in the UK was 38.4. Okay. Uh, and that had been the case for you know many many decades and whenever the whenever the temperatures over the last let's say 30 40 years whenever the new record temperature had been hit mm. it had been hit by a few decimal points so right. every other you know increase in the record temperature had Incremental. been yeah 38.1 to 38.2 mm. whatever and so very very small because you know these records so to then you know come and increase that by almost two full degrees centigrade is a huge huge spike so yeah. not the point being it's not just a record temperature it's a record temperature by a huge margin mm. um and you know it does it, you know it does show that something's something's going on um you know we saw the 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 fires i think everyone would have seen that yeah. everyone would have um, felt those two days where it was so hot um, mm. and i guess the question and the argument that everyone's grappling with is whether that was a you know a freakish one-off uh, incident uh, or whether we are going to start having more uh, extreme events like that um, 
uh, due to climate change over the you know over the coming years over the coming decades and it's something that we have to get we have to get used to yeah. you know, living in the UK you know there was lots of chat before the temperatures came and even when they were about how these um, these temperatures aren't that extreme in other places of the world and you know we Brits often go chasing for uh, yeah. these types of uh, temperatures uh, when on holiday so if we go chasing these temperatures why aren't we uh, uh, enjoying them at home and why is it such a different reaction at home sure. here to um, uh, the reaction of people who live in these uh, hot climates so you know obviously I, I think it's you know it's quite an obvious answer is that our infrastructure our way of life mm-hmm. here in the UK you know is just isn't built in the same way you know our yeah. houses aren't constructed in the same way our train infrastructure public transport isn't constructed in the same way and so the effect of that temperature is obviously obviously going to be completely different to um, to those countries where they're used to it uh, and it, so it may be that you know if that's something that we've got to get used to here again you know our infrastructure needs a lot of investment but it feels like maybe you know we've got to start taking into account um, these types of uh, weather events happening on a more regular basis so is there anything we can do about it in terms of you know are we a bit late in the day now in terms of you know, as a country, you know, carbon neutral, these all these terms that are bandied around. Well, it's amazing, which... isn't it? So, you know, if you're, you know, if you if you do subscribe to the view that these types of temperatures are due to climate change, then obviously mm. there's lots of things that, you know, you can do as an individual and that the government's trying to do and that the, you know, the multilateral global world is trying to do with the Paris Accords, with the, you know, with the drive, with the move to net zero, with the um, ambitions to get to that net zero. Correct. Uh, and all that type of stuff. We'll come on to it. It's interesting that the 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 at the same time the Tory leaders it would seem to be a point of debate and whether to stay, you know, keep the UK um, on track for that net zero target was still yep. going to be a thing. But you know that's um, so. There's obviously things we can do uh, from that respect in terms of making let's say it less likely that we have those temperatures again. Whether it's too late or not, you know, lots of people do say that the next five to ten years. Uh, is critical in terms of getting those, that temperature increase down by, I think, two degrees or or, or whatever it is. But so there's it, it's late in the day, but you know the scientists do think there's a small window that's rapidly closing. And then on the other side, I guess it's about the investment in infrastructure. And if we are going to see these extreme events, we've got to build a different type of infra- infrastructure. Right? Yeah, Trains have yeah. got to have air conditioning, kind of, and, and that type of stuff. But when you talk about uh, you know energy sources and what have you. Um, are we in a place, you know, economically speaking, because the world is going into a, a slowdown, right? Well, we're already in recession, essentially speaking. Do we have, as you know, as nations, as unions, uh, money to go about putting wind power, putting solar power into uh, practice? Because from what I've heard, especially when you talk about um, the African countries and the continent, they will continue to use coal and oil. It will still be that way. They're not set up infrastructure-wise. I don't think we are here either. Unfortunately, I think the um, it's a great point, and I think efficiency in kind of uh, resources mm. and investing in kind of climate infrastructure, like Hamza pointed out, is it's, it has to be really, really significant. Yep. And unless it's significant, it's not going to kind of have the impact that you need it to have. Yeah. And so then, obviously, you know, nations do tend to default on resources that they can rely on. Yep. Um, and then, you know, it's it's what's causing the issues. So. You know, is it the poorer countries using coal or is it celebrities flying aeroplanes, you know, three times a week? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, for example, an aeroplane, you know, I think one flight is enough to 
power a town of 30,000 people. Right. Right. So right. The, the carbon output is significant. Um, and so firstly, you've got to uh, really be clear in the argument, you know, where what's the cause and, and how do we quantify all of that? Mm. Um, and then you have to sell that to the public and make them believe in the science. Yep. And then you have to garner the investment. So the, the climate change battle, as it were, is deeply political um, and to, to kind of have the, the transition that we might need, especially in, in developing nations, um, it, it requires significant investment. And, and obviously that's not there at the moment. In certain aspects, and I guess it's um, sort of parallel, or, you know, you can run a lot of um, parallels to the electric vehicle space. Yeah. The, the globe has been sold on the fact that, yes, EV cars is the way to go, move away from combustion engines, etc., this will happen by 2025 in China, 2030 in the UK. So people are putting dates. I just wonder whether we're going to stick to those. But I think maybe that's the kind of sea change that's required from an environmental power perspective, perhaps. Yep, And I mean, it's, it's a process of trial and error as well, isn't it? Because I think as efficient as electric cars have kind of appeared to be, hmm. they're now, you know, we're now learning uh, after we've started using them what the actual environmental impact is. And we know that there's pros and cons to even using electric vehicles when it comes yeah. to energy consumption. Um, so it's, it's, a tr- it's a very tricky kind of subject at the moment. But the thing is, you know, it also comes down to what um, people's priorities are, right? And um, yeah. we've seen petrol prices shoot up and actually, you know, that type of thing, you know, yeah. as much as, you know, your you know, kind of um, climate conscious people will have moved to EV early, even with it maybe costing more, giving them a hit in the pocket. Yeah. You know, when, you know, for them, for it to, you know, move to the masses, it's always going to be an economic decision. Does this make sense for me economically to move to EV? And actually, on the vehicles, that's starting, it's starting to happen, mm. where you look at these, you know, two pound petrol prices and think, actually, if I bought a more expensive car out up front, I'm going yeah. to have a much, you know, um, a much smaller running cost, yeah. and actually yeah. that makes it over the over the medium term more cost efficient for me. So I'm going to do it. And the same thing with energy prices. I think as a country, you know, energy prices. So your, you know, your electric and heating bills are obviously skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to see that hugely over the winter. Yes. And again, I think that's when people start to say, well, if we were more self reliant or able to have other forms of energy and weren't at such a the whim of the um, kind of global mm. uh, oil and gas prices, yep. again, maybe we'd have been able to weather this storm in a more uh, efficient way. So I think sometimes, you know, with all the best will in the world, um, it does take some short-term, you know, pain for people to go, oh, actually, it would have been better, it will be better if I make these decisions. And, you know, mm. they, in this case, align with the climate move. Yeah. And that's always when you're going to get the best results. Yep. And yeah. And um, I just want to jump in and say, it's, it's probably worth pointing out as well that um, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine yeah. um, has probably exacerbated the, the resource issue. Yes. Um, yes. So we've seen some really interesting international relations uh, prevailing as a result yeah. of that and you know I think a really interesting one is India mm-hmm. who um, and similar to other kind of countries who have been buying Russian oil yep. um, and then where they've had reserves or surplus of their own um, they've, they've been selling that at um, a higher price and yep. I think you know so I, I think that's kind of perhaps uh, speeding up the process of wanting to kind of transition away from from oil uh, and, and or you know at least considering what what kind of impact it has on um, 
Yeah, I mean, you see some of the the bartering this week was obviously um, Biden, the US president, had gone to uh, Saudi Arabia to Mm -hmm. say, please up your supplies. Saudi said it's going to be down to OPEC plus. But from what I had read is that Saudi will continue to export from the US from their own reserves in the meantime buying from Russia to supplement their own domestic use. I mean, you know... Are we just in that space where this is the sort of political bartering that is becoming, and are we, particularly in the West, just becoming hung up on this whole... I mean, obviously, what Putin has done, you can't go into another country and just invade and do as you please. Of course, there's going to be repercussions for something like that. But when you become so reliant, now these are the sort of, you know, sort of backdoor deals that have to get done. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a, yeah, and that's the tricky space we're in, right? And I think that's why everyone's now looking at it, going. And the US did quite a good job with fracking, as yes. in they they you know they did you know they get got ahead of that, and so the, at least the percentage was smaller. You know, in Europe, we're at, totally at the mercy of you know Russia, Russia and, yeah. and OPEC plus, yeah. and um, you know it's a dangerous dangerous place to be. Mm, exactly. Yeah. No. Of course. I think in many respects, the US is quite cocooned in in. In economics, just because of the scale of the mm. country, right? In terms of importing, um, we're talking about you know normal goods, etc. You're talking about energy, uh, global, con- you know, consumption of consumer. They don't need to worry about what's happening in other parts of the world as such. They've still got tariffs against China, so they they can create domestic demand for their own, um, you know, American-produced products and what have you, and that will continue yeah. going. But you're right in Europe, in particular, and the UK now with all the Brexit mm-hmm. issues that are still ongoing. Yeah. You know, four or five years down the line, we've still not concluded, but we still have issues, and yeah. that's what I think we've seen now. And look, even uh, France, they're going to have to nationalise uh, EDF. You know, they're talking about buying that out and doing that because you can't let companies just you know well they'll be bleeding right essentially yeah um and i and, and you've seen a real emphasis on that argument is how are energy companies spending their money because the argument is always reinvestment yeah um but you know the the edf uh, being nationalized um mm. is is an example of uh the or the government and the public not really being happy with the way the money's being reinvested arguably yeah. Yeah, Centrica British Gas uh, rumored to be reinstating their dividend to their shareholders. Okay. At the okay. next set of results, which obviously is uh, going to be is going to go down really well. <laughs> well, they have to pay someone out there. Don't yeah, they? Well, that's what the shareholders are. Yeah. You know, that's the, I mean, that is the tricky balance, isn't it? Shareholders have so we haven't had a dividend for two years. Yep. And, and you're making and, multiple and and you time you profit. need to start yeah. making that money. And customers and yeah. the politicians are going to say, "Hang on a minute." you've increased prices you know three runs in a row yeah you made a lot of money mm. how about we hold some price how about we hold your prices yeah it's not you don't get a viable business that way do you? so it's, they're in a True. they're in a very uh they're in a, in a very tricky bind that's and on top of that when you talk about windfall taxes as well potentially mm-hmm. on these sort of companies mm-hmm. yeah that's the other way I mean, but that's the government being able to hold a gun to their heads right saying look you're either going to do one or the other yeah. you're either going to get taxed and you're going to give it to us or you're going to give it to the public yeah, you know, so it's a bit of a Robin Hood move. I'd never thought to see the Conservatives do something like that, but we'll, well it's, see. It's a balancing act, isn't it? I think they off, they said that they were they would do it once as a one off. <coughs> yes, a and then there's some clawbacks if you do yep. X, Y, and Z, and then you can save that. Yeah, in yep. the longer run, but we'll have to see. We will.
Um, what else is happening? What else have you seen, Hans? So it's big, uh, big holiday chaos. It's on the front page of, um, I think, every newspaper today, actually. Yep. Huge queues uh, at Dover this time. So we've been reading right. a lot over the last few weeks about um, the problems at Heathrow and Gatwick. Yes. Queues at Heathrow and Gatwick. Um, not enough ground staff, people coming through. Right. Luckily, this week, um, and a lot of that was... Um, especially the case on British Airways. But luckily, I think for most holiday goers, they've, their ground staff have agreed uh, an 8% increase in pay with the company. Uh, so it looks like they won't be striking uh, for the remainder of the summer. Yeah. So which should ease some of the burden at, at, um, at Heathrow, specifically on British Airways flights. Yeah. Uh, but this time we've been hit with uh, big, big queues at the ports. So um, here in France, mm-hmm. um, ferries going apparently six-hour queues uh, wow. to get to get um, to get there. Yesterday, uh, people being advised to get to <laughs> get to the port four hours uh, before they're due to wow. go, um, and you know, a whole hu- uh, you know, basically France, the French and um, British governments accusing each other of not being prepared for this. Right. Uh, you know, the uh, UK government saying that this is on France they were they we knew there were going to be problems here they should have more um, uh, staff ready to check passports on arrival right and that's the problem the French saying no 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 this is that this is actually the this is the Brits fault this is predominantly due to Brexit and there being the need for more checks than there were before yeah Brits saying well you knew that was going to be the case yeah, it yeah, should be absolutely. a shock why aren't there more and um, you know people can blame each other as much as they want yeah. the reality on the ground for holiday goers is there's huge queues yeah. um, and you know and the likelihood is that this is just going to continue over the summer regardless of how you're traveling mm. for a whole mixture of reasons um, it's not it's not great no absolutely I and mean, you must think from the airline company's perspective two years almost of lockdown you now get into a space where people mm. are ready to go and want to buy tickets and what do you do you start cancelling yeah. flights upon flights and what have you I mean, I don't know what the you know the repercussions of the cost of refunding people, what the basis of that will be. Um, you know, you would hope the consumer doesn't lose out because of post-COVID. We know the cancellations can happen. Yeah. Um, but um, but I mean, from from what I've seen and heard, airline price ticket prices have been going up ridiculously high. Yeah, that price is going up. They haven't got the staff, have they? But essentially, they haven't got the ground staff to be able to manage it. Um, and. You know, it's basically causing is- causing huge, huge issues. And you know, those individuals, those staff at the airline companies, you know, they've been hit with cost of living crisis, and they've mm. seen um, uh, the profitability for those airlines coming back, yeah, uh, or at least the revenue coming back, money coming back. And these are individuals who would have taken pay cuts, maybe, or pay freezes at the very least during yeah. COVID, yeah, uh, and they'd have, you know been told at the time you make these sacrifices in the short term so that this business so that our business can continue to function continue to run and yeah. when we're more profitable we will remember that and, yeah and you know you'll then see uh, the benefits and we'll be you know bringing you back in line at that stage yeah obviously now those employees rightfully are saying well you're making money again now people are traveling again there's no issues you're successful you're making profit yeah um we went through a really hard two years. We want to see some of that. What are you doing to our wages? And, you know, yeah. and I think the airlines originally came in with 2 3% pay rises. Right, right, right. And that probably would have been enough, um, assuming costs had 
been the same. the same. Yeah. So you know that's probably what airlines thought was what they could. What you know back when they said, "Oh, please take the pay cut and we'll get it back to." Yeah. Um, X. X. Whatever they were probably thinking, we'll come back with pay rises two three percent in that time. Mm-hmm. Cost of living in crisis, inflation, individuals. That's not enough anymore, is it? They're seeing their costs go up nearly ten percent. Yeah. You know they don't. That two percent pay rise isn't going to cut it. So people are coming back much more forcefully saying, you know, we need much bigger pay rise, and that's a problem for the airlines. So they're having to agree to much bigger pay rise than they would have wanted to. They're seeing this opportunity to try and make money yeah. after the last few years where they, you know, they haven't. They've just been bleeding cash, and um, it's not going to be as easy as that. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it's a really interesting point you make, Hamza, because I think it it is a kind of give and take point, isn't it? Which is throughout COVID, the money wasn't there, and you know now it's there, and they want a part of that. And then, you know, you've seen that across a lot of travel services, you know, the strikes. Yes. Um, and we've seen um, trade unions coming to the front. We've seen them in the press quite a bit. Yeah. Um, we've seen folks like Mike Lynch um, speaking, you know, or representing uh, the workforce. Um, and, you know, it, it begs the question as well. You know, I think COVID uh, was the rise of the discontent worker. You know, fo- folks were realizing that maybe they want a, an adjustment to you know how things are or that they can ask for more from their employer yep. or and and so all of that is kind of bottlenecked as we've come out of covid you know a, a lack of kind of um access to to work and money and and now folks are seeing that we're going back to normal like you say and yeah you know, I, they, they want to play i think that's right look, covid was really tough for a lot of people um and I think a lot of people saw businesses not making any money as well and saw that they, yeah. their employers were probably struggling. Yeah, there's a, a great lot of good to the whole thing. And right? I think there was an understanding there. So I think people were, you know, on the most part, willing to put up with it and will and kind of accepting that it was going to be a difficult time because, you know, businesses couldn't, couldn't um, succeed in that environment either. It was a challenge. People accepted that. But, um, you know, but then I think on the flip side... They then come out of it and you come into an environment where actually some of some businesses are doing well again. There is success. There's money to be made there. Mm. And the employees are saying, well, hang on a minute. We put up with a really, really challenging two years. We were willing to do that. We sacrificed a lot to enable these businesses to not go under some of them. Yeah. Yep. And, um, you know, now the now the company's making lots of money they feel like, you know, they're trying to shortchange them. And, and so I think rightfully they're coming back strong. But the thing is, I think even with these, some of these companies, you know, in the reduction of flights and what have you, then all right, perhaps you don't need as many people. Heathrow as a running hub obviously does. But I think when you look at the airlines and these other um, yeah, entities themselves, I think they're looking after number one, which is their company's existence, you know, that continues and what have you. And I think the, where the issue will arise is the fact is we're heading into a downturn. There will be redundancies and there have been, I'm sure people's wages in real terms are going lower because inflation is higher so will it be a case of the companies are actually just playing it fine okay you know will this will be it'll hurt people generally speaking in terms of efficiency travel and these sort of things but ultimately they'll be able to pick from a larger unemployment pool because that's potentially what could happen therefore where does the trade unions power go where does their pricing and their wage power go it goes out the window right yeah no absolutely and it, it, it's a it's a balancing act and i think you know so mike lynch for example you know when he was talking about uh, railway workers um 
he he has power because you're 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 quite right. He has power because the the railway workers are still employed. Yeah. Um, but I I think it's it's very difficult for essential services um, to make decisions that go against the worker um, because there is the threat of of that service coming to a standstill, um, mm. and we've seen that. Um, so I I think you know as as Hamza says I think it's it's kind of and and that's why you've seen the trade unions come into the press so much because it it is time that you know the worker is at the table the negotiation table yep. and is able to kind of recoup some of the losses they've made as as you know a member of the workforce so it's an interesting i mean it's interesting you say the power and the um on regarding the trains it's um it's a good point it's like um i think before um before covid that was a real kind of gun to the head of the employer mm. you know, you're not going to be able to run services yep and everybody needs those services to get to work yeah uh yep. it's just not the same correct anymore yeah, you know, yeah, yeah they hold that gun to the employer to the employer's head says strike no, no no one really cares yeah. people doing three days at home or whatever yeah anyway. yeah, that's yeah, yeah another yeah, two yeah. days at home and yeah, yeah, yeah and so the kind of the the, the shift has been different <clears throat> and i think in so mike lynch you know i think smart guy you know he he i think he recognized that and actually realized that to kind of win this debate he had to be way more high profile and Mm. more out there making the argument so that people could hear the argument yeah uh, and then make a call regardless of whether actually their day-to-day was disrupted or not because actually most of the day-to-day was not that disrupted um so i thought that was a quite it's quite an interesting change in the dynamic of the uh of the railway unions because they just don't have the same impact Striking doesn't have the same impact in that industry that it that it did only two years ago. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, we'll see how the the transport pans out. I mean, uh, you know, it doesn't give a lot of confidence you for people to even book flights now out of Heathrow because you're not sure whether when you've already got a risk of with COVID, you know, sort of cases going up again that you know your tickets can get cancelled or you don't want to go to gatherings perhaps you know maybe a week or two prior to flying but then on top of that you get the risk of someone just outright cancelling oh we can only let x flights go during a day unfortunately you're one of the unlucky ones yeah yeah the only thing i would say is all been very uh, downbeat on this show on in terms of holiday travel yeah the only thing i'd say is these are this last week and this week are probably the two busiest weeks right you know in terms of summer holiday season schools have just broken up people are looking to get away yeah and so there's all i think there's you know you forget sometimes don't you, because of what what happened over covid and mm. there was the inability to get away. this is always the busiest kind of two three week stretch yeah and you'd hope that you know if you're if you're going away a bit later in yes. the summer you might be yeah. all right you'd hope that things have calmed down a bit um and, it, and 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 hopefully this is just that yeah. rapid spike that that you know people aren't aren't weren't ready for yeah, yeah, let's let's see. I mean, obviously, there's still people adjusting coming out of COVID. Obviously, industries are doing that as well. So, it'd be it'd be nice to think that it's a blip. I hope it is. Yeah, I hope it is. Um, uh, um, but you're, you're right. And I think you know, not to be gloomy, but I know for me personally, you know, I haven't gone abroad because I am concerned about the travel situation. Mm. Um, but you're right. Hope, hopefully, it kind of you know begins to topple over. Yeah. Well, let's see. We'll come to that. Anything else on the news roundup side, Hamza? I think a bit of good news um, for the for the first time in a long time uh, out of Ukraine. <coughs> um, yep. So, quite interestingly, um, uh, 
the Ukrainians have come to an agreement with the Russians to enable the ex to the enable the export of grains from Ukraine. I think okay. people probably read quite a lot about the the price you know, that being one of the key drivers to f- um, food price increases at the moment. Right. Yeah, uh, there's some crazy stats of the amount of grain that comes out of that region being kind of eighty percent of the world, I think, or something. Okay. I hope I'm not too far off there, but it's a really really big percentage of the global grain supply comes from that region in the world and it not being able to be exported over the last few months has really driven um, specifically food price increases yeah and so that has been uh, it has been agreed over the last couple of days that that can start again um, the Russians have allowed that uh, and so that should mean uh, in theory at least mm. that um, you know enabling that flow of, of grains out of the region should help to ease that supply chain issue and bring some uh, cost down uh, from your weekly shop yeah yeah i mean obviously i mean that's that's obviously something good to hear because in terms of i mean we're we're so super reliant here in terms of you know export i mean what do we produce you know anymore in in the uk right jam um yeah no exactly that's that's the thing right so it's not only that but i mean zishan you know as well um for myself in terms of you know out of east africa so we're reliant on tea flowers vegetables all those things are imported right you know to europe and to the uk yeah the supermarkets that's that's something we're very reliant on but those companies um have been hit with freight costs you know they're 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 cost of product how much can you pass on to a consumer now yeah exactly um and we've seen it here right and i think um the the cost of food here for us uh, you know has been compounded by a few things so the russia invasion of ukraine covid brexit yeah um and you know you mentioned tariffs and so yeah i i think um you you know you start to get a feel for um, how bad things are when you know regular folks aren't you know who don't aren't doing economic analysis or reading yeah, papers yeah, yeah. necessarily you well, know really begin that. to talk about yeah. the price changes and everything yes, yes. Um, and that's the hard evidence of, of you know uh, things going up as well mm. but I think the the Russia situation is really interesting as well you yeah know, um, because they you know they're invading Ukraine they've agreed a deal with them. Uh, to do with food so it kind of suggests that they're not in a war of attrition you know they're they're not trying to completely obliterate Ukraine right Um, and you know I think that's interesting and then also um, the the grain deal and how that interacts with global sanctions regimes Um, because the the way food is imported and exported and transited across the world um, if there's anything coming out of Ukraine or or has a Russian nexus to it, then um, there's a lot of um, oversight and and concern from regulators and global authorities on, yeah. on how that food is moving. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm really eager to see you know whether this deal actually does have the effect, intended effect of of bringing food prices uh, into stability. The concern is though. Whenever oil prices drop, oil had gone up significantly last year and, you know, fairly high levels, over well over $100 a barrel. As soon as the oil price drops, we never see a drop in the pump prices. Yeah. Is this going to be the same when it comes to food prices? Exactly. Um, and it's interesting as well, right, because I'm not sure how it works with food, but with oil, mm. there's the cost of oil. And then, um, obviously, there's the tax on top of that. Or, or, yes. And... 
uh, I think when it hit two pounds, there was a big argument about, well, the government can actually cut yeah, some yeah, of the yeah. tax yeah. from it. So yeah. why aren't they? Um, because maybe that's their only mode of income, right? Because yeah. where else are you not? You've 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 got to recoup furlough money. Yeah. Uh, the loans that they provided, which from what I've been reading, that's not going to get paid back. <laughs> that's just gone. Yeah. So you know, there's a lot of people who took opportunity of having shell companies that were already established took these loans to get through that time period, and that will be written off. So. Uh, we're in that scenario. I think it's it's very easy to bash the government, the economics of it, and obviously we'll talk about Rishi Sunak coming in yeah, later on. Yeah. He presided over probably one of the toughest periods um, in terms of economic challenges. Yeah. And how do you balance, you know, one putting money in people's pockets to see them through the tough period, and then we run into you know various challenges yeah. via Brexit, via cost of living, via energy prices, via the war. There's been so many. It's almost like a perfect storm of things going wrong. Yeah. Um, and and you're right, and and I think the Conservative Party, you know, are the the kind of beacon of you know sensible sensible economic management. True, right? Yeah. Um, but and and it's been a balancing act for Rishi, uh, and he's got a lot of criticism for some of his initiatives. But you're right, I think you know, given the circumstances, he has you know tried to make the best of a situation. Yeah. But with furlough, for example, mm. um, and and it's obviously really disappointing to hear that you know we're not going to be recouping that money but uh, the the question of how much that helped during covid yeah um you know it it you can't answer it right you don't mm. know the impact um yes. how many jobs did furlough save or how many people did it you know did it allow people to continue in their careers we simply don't know yeah um, yeah so it's a, it's a very complex argument, I guess. Is my I mean, point. paid for some yep. people's Netflix? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which it. is going up in price now as well, apparently. Yeah. Um, um, and, and but it, you know, giving folks um, cash, it just goes back to that old philosophical argument of mm. you know, do you give the the person um, a fish or a fishing rod kind of thing, sure, right? Sure. So um, yeah, that's a tricky one, I think. Yeah. No, I, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that I think was a difficult time. I don't think we've, yeah. we've seen that again. And, you know, um, we all hope to God that we don't see those times again, you know, where lockdown returns and then, you know, people are, you know, literally sitting at home, you know, finding... I mean, I was actually just going through some of my uh, camera reels and I was actually looking at, you know, the home workouts and things you had yeah. to do to keep yourself kind mm -hmm. of, yeah. you know, motivated to split your day up because you're indoors, right? Yeah. And um, it's strange to look at that. And I think we'll look back in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years' time and think, do you remember that time period when we couldn't go outside yep. of our houses and we were trying to, you know, keep ourselves amused and busy and active yep. within our four walls? Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, I think, I think um, we'll have to see. I mean, my point is that, coming back to the whole point, is that, yes, oil prices have gone up. So, but if there's only so many places you're getting revenue from, otherwise all the government's going to do is carry on printing money, creating more debt, and that is going to cause an issue later on down the line. Yeah. Someone is going to have to pay the piper, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, no, uh, and I think, well, it will feed us into the next uh, topic yeah. quite nicely, leadership. Absolutely. So we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll go into our main topic, which will be honesty in governance. And we'll talk about uh, the future of uh, the party in terms of the UK and the Conservative Party. Um, what are the way, routes and the way forwards? So please return uh, with us after the break and we'll continue with our main topic then. The promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam states, 
When God Almighty intends to inform his servants of a matter pertaining to the realm of the unknown, whether he does it in response to his servant's prayer or on his own, he brings down upon him a sort of unconsciousness, and all of a sudden he loses touch with his surroundings. In that state, he completely loses awareness of even his own existence. Like a diver who plunges down to the bottom of a pool, he's completely submerged and drowned in that state of selflessness, unawareness, and unconsciousness. When, in the end, he breaks surface like a diver with whom he shares his experience to a large degree and is delivered from that state of unawareness, he becomes conscious of a resonance within him. As that resonance fades out, he becomes aware of the presence of a most pleasant, well-balanced, and exquisite communication within him. And this experience is so strange and sublime that it is beyond one's power to describe it in words. It is this experience which reveals to one the existence of a flowing river of inner wisdom. It is through this experience of near unconsciousness that a servant of God receives from God answers to all his supplications in an extremely exquisite and pleasant tone. Then, in response to whatever question takes shape in that state of semi-unconsciousness, God reveals to him such profound knowledge as is impossible for a man to discover otherwise. This in itself results in his gaining greater faith in God and a better understanding of his wondrous ways. Man's supplication and God's response to it by way of manifestation of his being the true object of worship is an experience which enables man to behold God as if he were seeing him in this very world. Thus he begins to belong to both worlds simultaneously. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. It's uh, now 10.43 on the 23rd of July. You're joined by myself, Shaz Alone, and my co-presenters, Zishan Mirza and Hamza Vanderman. Uh, gentlemen, let's go into our main topic. Um, obviously, it's been very uh, much in the uh, uh, press for the last what few weeks in particular, um, following Boris Johnson's resignation. You know, finally being pushed off the cliff after twenty five thousand attempts. Um, you know, he dodged. I don't know how many bullets. Yeah. Um, finally had to go. Um, but uh, let's talk about the current status of what's going to happen in terms of leadership, and then we'll uh, move over into uh, you know yeah, so the I hope everyone, integrity section. I hope everyone's enjoying the uh, leadership, the Conservative Party leadership uh, battle. Yeah. Uh, I certainly am. Day daily votes. Dog eat dog, uh, <laughs> votes being tactically lent to opponents to knock out people who they think who they don't think. I mean, it's just a great setup, isn't it? It's like we have you, such quirky you know, UK politics <laughs> rules, don't, don't we? I don't know who came up with toxic. this. I came up with this idea. You know that what we'll do is we'll start with as many candidates as you want, yeah, yeah, and we're yeah. just going to have like a daily vote between the MPs, yes, to steadily knock one out after the other, yep. yeah. 
and if you've got a huge bank of and then and then and then all the Machiavellian strategists start thinking so if you've got the front runner you know do you actually want all of your own votes to yourself at the early stage no absolutely not you start you start borrow you start lending them out so that people that you don't want to go through get knocked out of the uh, and it's just an incredible uh, it's and people who you know have got no chance are therefore can have more votes and the people who actually would be in the battle continue so the MPs play yeah. this crazy game uh, yeah. and they have been playing this crazy game yeah, over yeah, the yeah. last few days uh, over the last couple of weeks and uh, whittling down this list I think it started off of kind of eight nine people didn't yeah. it and it slowly whittled its way down yeah. to uh, the final two and that's where we're at the moment Rishi Sunak versus Liz Truss the um, formula the former chancellor versus the uh, former uh, foreign, foreign secretary, secretary. Yeah. yeah yeah so these are the two big um you know personalities i guess people in the race that you know the general public will have heard from and seen over the last few years compared mm. to the other people um uh, so you would say that you know these two just in terms of their experience in high office are the probably the most experienced and credible of the candidates to to take the job regardless of what you think of their policies yeah you know their backgrounds having done these two you know very big jobs over the last few years does make them in terms of just experience um you know the best placed of the candidates to go for it um because you know it's you know it's incredible but so many of the other candidates who were being raised on this huge platform had basically never had senior ministerial jobs. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the candidates, Kemi Badenoch, who all the um, Tory press were kind of really in behind. She's yes. never done a serious job. She's never yeah. had one. And th- they were genuine. They were kind of, you know, serious people genuinely saying that she would make a fantastic prime minister. I mean, look, she'd, never, she'd never run anything. Yeah, I yet. mean, look, off air, that's myself as Zishan was just <laughs> saying that, that the story was that she was a standout. Yeah. And Zishan, yeah. what was your, what was your yeah. uh, take so, on it? I, I, the thing is, I, I liked Kemi um, on the basis that uh, it was a breakaway from the norm. You know, I, I think experience, Hamza makes a great point, obviously, you know, being experienced should be the the number one driver for who gets the job. Yeah. Um, but you know, fresh perspective, um, somebody who's not part of the old order. The fact that Kemi represents, um, you know, a, a, a background, a background from eth- ethnic background. Sorry, and she, you know, she was quite. I, I felt like she was quite progressive in some some of her policies. Right. Um, but this is what I mean. I mean, it's like um, someone described this really well. Uh, they said it was almost like the Tory party was running a um, political love island contest. And it was oh, more about... There, didn't you? And it was, <laughs> don't and tell it, us about your TV and, habits, uh, my friend. And, you know, it became more about just, you know, who's, who's, <laughs> whose views do you like the most rather than, mm. you know, who's actually got competency to yeah. run to the run country. To run for yeah. purpose, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah. so yeah. I mean, I've got no problem people like Kemi's views, but she hasn't run, she hasn't run anything. Yeah, and then you want to say, right. oh, by the way, can you just run the country and <laughs> on your good views on yeah, your, on no, your nice true. political views it's, it's you know the world doesn't work like that she's actually got to run a function it's you know the equivalent of running high office it's you know the and we'll come on to it in terms of those characteristics capabilities that people look for in their leaders and sadly mm. kind of 
technical competence doesn't you know wasn't that high up on the list now luckily yeah. it turned out that actually what's happened is the two candidates that have been put forward probably are the most um uh, experienced um i mean i i hadn't heard of penny uh yeah. moderate uh, prior to the leadership race suddenly she's fit to run the country as yeah, well she's I mean, junior trade minister ex-defense that's why the tories love her because yeah, she yeah. was and she worked in bush's defense. campaigns and, and in the u.s and she's ex-navy Right. Yeah. Okay. So you know, this is why to you know she you know in within Tory circles she's got the but obviously you know normal people would never have heard of her because <laughs> yeah, what's she done? People. She's not done anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, we're down to this na- this next section, yes. which is now uh, incredibly where the next prime minister of the country is selected by the Tory memberships. Two hundred thousand. So two hundred thousand two hundred thousand Tory members uh, now vote um, on these two. Uh, I'm going to call them contestants <laughs> um, to become to become the UK's next prime minister. Uh, and so now, what ha- what you find is um, that the MPs Rishi and uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have to make signals to the membership. Uh, in order to win their trust and win their votes. And obviously, Tory membership has a very different, uh, let's say, view of the world to either both the general public and Tory MPs even. Yeah, but so now what you find is you, you, you've you gone from, you know, having this crazy uh, race where people can say what they want to try and get Tory MPs on side. Now you've got to go even further right to try and get your Tory members on side. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible to watch. So yeah. we've had uh, just two tweets come in as we've been talking about uh, uh, the subject so to two comments from a, um, a listener obviously uh, Kayum is his name uh, he said it's a bit unfair to call the government as conservative it's a populist government which is why there is so much chaos and why Boris Johnson has gone even with an 80 seat majority and when we were talking about the second uh, section about the candidates he said when candidates from the BAME community say there is no racism in the party even though numerous government organisations have been proven to be institutionally racist I think I like Kayum uh, so, no, yeah, no, okay. so um, I think it's interesting Kayum says that and, and um, I was listening to Rishi funnily enough on LBC uh, yesterday yeah. and to Hamza's point about uh, which is a great point about the transition from them campaigning to the public yes. to campaigning to the membership Correct. and Rishi was on LBC yesterday talking about why we need to get the Rwanda policy right Okay. Um, and I think, you know, to Kayum's uh, point, uh, yeah. the tweet is, you know, it's it's very difficult to try to understand if somebody from an ethnic background, it will represent um, folks who are from an ethnic background, you know, who want to be represented. Yes. So, if, you know, for example, um, the... We, we see it as a good thing because we believe that person might represent us in some way. Yes. Right? But if that individual continues with policies which are kind of counter to, yes. um, yeah, you know, people like immigrants, then you do question whether it actually is a progressive move. So mm. it's, it's a great tweet. But I don't think, I mean, it, and the, the, um, the, you know, I criticised uh, lots of Tory MPs for various things, uh, as people who listen to this, this show know. But, you know, on this matter, and I don't think we are, I don't think myself personally, I am looking for, you know, representation um, in terms of my view through someone who looks like me in office. 
you know, I'm looking for someone who will represent my views in office. And then, what, mm. and then, what's the second thing I look for is, you know, who, who, which party is giving opportunities to people that look like me, regardless of uh, their political views. And I think True. on that point, the Tory Party have, and I don't think anyone should really deny it. Um, they've done a much, much better job than the Labour Party of mm. providing platforms and opportunities for their ethnic minority yeah. um, MPs. You I mean, know, you look, at that good slate, like, look at that slate of candidates. It was fifty yeah, percent. Yeah. I mean, it was fifty percent ethnic minority. They were calling it? it Browning Street, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, that's that's what you know. Those are the memes and the sort of things yeah. you saw. So, but when you return to Labour and you see, you know, like people who are touted to be good MPs potentially for life, Chucka Amuna, people like that, and they've just been sidelined. They just haven't been given those chances. I don't know. Yeah, I totally agree. And look, in, and I think the Tory party in that respect, you can, uh, you know, I can sit here and disagree with Rishi Sunak's politics or Nazim Sahawi's politics. Yes. Um, but that's no surprise because then mm. that shouldn't be a surprise to me because they sit in the party that probably doesn't align on my views the, the, as closely, right? Sure. So obviously they're not going to align with my views. Now, but that doesn't mean that the Tory party haven't done a much better job in terms of giving those individuals opportunities uh, for for high office. You know, you've got the Home Secretary, uh, the um, uh, Priti Patel, you know, was Home Secretary. Um, I'm questioning that brownness. <laughs> yeah, but look, look, these guys are in those positions and they're given those opportunities now you can say whether you know that it's in it's a cynical display or not but you know frankly that's you know the labor party would be thinking in the same way and but they don't end up with um people mm, in those positions in and, yeah. and so i think you know i think to be fair to the conservative party they've done a you know a much better job i say yeah. again much better job than the labor party in putting people forward yeah mm. and i think so to, to come back on that so i think the the Conservative <coughs> Party, um, you know, they have put um, more people forward from from members of uh, you know different ethnic backgrounds. But um, I am cynical because uh, you know a part of me has believed uh, for a certain time, and it goes back to what their politics are, is and and what the uh, Conservative Party are known to be masters at, which is PR, mm. um, and you know lining your front bench with you know people from different ethnic backgrounds. Um, is a is a counter strategy to to the racist PR campaign uh, to a, to you know the Tories being consistently called racist. Mm. Um, so they have given access to those individuals. How much those individuals are like us, I'm not sure. You know, Rishi, obviously privately educated. You know, billion close to billionaire status. I'm but, privately educated. Okay, yeah, like, um, but the the wealth I think is. You know, and the route into politics is slightly unique. I don't have wolf. Yeah, I don't have wolf. And so you're right. So the Conservative <laughs> Party have done a PR strategy of putting those folks into those positions, but Labour don't have that luxury no, Labour, because they are a member-led but, party. But, so uh, the, the leaders Labour are. Pa- sorry, I, challenge I just that. want to finish. I just want to finish this point. Sorry. So the the Labour leaders are selected by um, a much larger representation across the population. So they do actually represent um, through democracy uh, those leadership positions. But that's almost worse then, isn't it? So, I mean, the Tory party therefore have created a mechanism by which they can give opportunities to their ethnic minority uh, candidates. The Labour Party haven't found that route and its members continue to just put forward, um, mainly speaking, white males into the positions of power. Mm. The Labour Party was more than happy ages ago leading on women-only lists. 
um, and that's why and that saw a huge and that's why the Labour Party had this huge influx of um, of women MPs and it led it led uh, British politics for a long time in terms of that diversity and the diversity of the overall MPs as a result so you know if the Labour Party wanted to I'm sure it could put in the same energy and verve to how it moved the dial on that in terms of um, ethnic minorities I mean we also haven't come um, discuss the point that Labour Party is just so far behind in terms of uh, mm. female leaders. Never elected a female leader, right? Yeah. Um, yep. Which is crazy, considering you're now in a position where the Tory Party are either going to elect uh, the third, their third leader, mm. a female leader, who will be the third, you you know, uh, female prime minister, yep. or the first ever ethnic minority. Um, and so I think you know, for the Labour Party to sit there complacently and say, "Oh, it's because of X, Y, and Z reason," isn't serious. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fair point. And I think the la- Labour do have a, a long way to go in, in kind of um, catching up to the Conservative Party and when it comes to um, having a wider representation of leadership. Um, but I do think that the the Labour support base and the leaders you see as a result of that is, is a more organic process rather than a PR-led one. That may be the case. That may be the case. Um, but... The other thing is, I mean, you, when you look at it, you've seen a Conservative plan, a party that's floundered from con, from scandal to scandal to scandal, and Labour have made no headway, yeah, no headway against them in in any types of yeah of polls. They're, they're a million miles away from being elected. Yeah. and and I think, look, for me, I think it's um, and you know, going back to the actual policies and the politics, it's who who's going to kind of achieve the change for BAME communities. Um, and you know, at this particular time, it happens to be uh, a, a Caucasian female, right? Um, or uh, you know, somebody like Angela Rayner, or you know, the, the, some of the, the females we see in, on the Labour benches. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it is a really interesting point, and it is but, obviously super um, interesting that that Conservative Party are the first to to put out potentially a a BAME uh, Prime Minister. Um, but whether whether he uh, whether he retains the support of the Conservative Party base will be interesting to see, right, Hamza? Yeah, look, and I think look, the question is whether that individual, um, you know, is representative of the communities that they're from. We've had another question about that. The select, you know, but the selected BAME candidates are super wealthy and do not in any way represent the communities they come from. that's my point actually I don't think that's relevant to some extent Um, the point is that that party is creating opportunities for people who are who look like that to take high office Um, they're obviously not going to represent the vast majority of ethnic minorities in this country because the vast majority of ethnic minorities politics isn't conservative yeah so you're starting from a position where, of course, that's going to be the case. Yeah, like then, that's a, that's a no that's a no brainer. If 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 you've got ethnic minorities sitting in the Tory party, obviously they're not going to represent the views of most ethnic minorities in the UK then, because it's 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 polled that you know that they're going to be Labour Labour Party. Let's return to the topic. We're going to go to a short news break in about five seconds, but we'll come back with our main topic: honesty in governments. Please join us after the break. What do Muslims believe about past prophets and scriptures? Two of the six articles of faith for a Muslim are to believe in the prophets of God and to believe in the divine scriptures. Therefore, Muslims believe that all prophets were sent by God and that the scriptures, in their original form, were divine revelations that, amongst other things, taught the absolute unity of God. According to the Holy Quran, God has sent his messengers to every nation, 
it states, There is no people to whom a warner has not been sent. Chapter 35, verse 25. And for every people there is a messenger. Chapter 10, verse 48. Some prophets have been mentioned in the Holy Quran itself, such as Adam, Abraham, David, Solomon, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, peace be upon them all. Other prophets, not mentioned in the Holy Quran by name, include Zoroaster, Krishna, and Confucius, peace be on them all, to name but a few. As mentioned previously, Muslims not only believe in all the earlier prophets, but also in the revelations and scriptures given to those prophets by God. In the Holy Quran itself, reference is made to four revealed books other than the Holy Quran. These are Suhuf, Scriptures of Abraham, peace be upon him, in chapter 87, verse 20. Of the Suhuf of Abraham, nothing is known today. These scriptures were probably never recorded in writing. Torah, the Torah of Moses, peace be upon him, chapter 3, verse 4. The Torah comprises the first five books of the Hebrew Bible and contains a complete law for the Israelites. These five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah was passed down the generations by the word of mouth and was finally recorded in writing some hundreds of years after Moses, peace be upon him. Zabur, the Psalms of David, peace be upon him, in chapters 4, verse 164. Very little is known today of Zabur, or the revelations of prophet David, peace be upon him. In the Hebrew Bible, there are many psalms, sacred songs or hymns, attributed to David, peace be upon him, which may constitute part of the Zabur. Injil, or the Gospel of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. Chapter 5, verse 47. The Injil, or Gospel, was revealed to the prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, but was not recorded during his lifetime. After his death, attempts were made to record his teachings in writing. Of many such narratives, four were selected by the early church as official accounts of the teachings of Jesus, peace be upon him. These four versions of the Gospel are known today as the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, Mark and John. However, there are other Gospels that are not included in the Bible that also contain important information about the life and teachings of Jesus, peace be upon him. With the exception of the Holy Quran, none of the real books retained their original form. Good morning and welcome to Saturday Morning Live. It's the 23rd of July, Saturday here, 11.05. You're joined by myself, Shaz Alone, and my co-presenters in the studio, Hamza Vanderman and Zishan Mirza. Gents, we've been discussing, obviously, the uh, honesty in governments has been our main topic, and we've been talking <coughs> about the race for the leadership. But someone's messaged in, Hamza, tell yeah, us. Yeah, we've got another message. It's, yep. um, uh, picking up on our discussion on the other side of the break, it says, uh, colour and gender is and should be irrelevant i'd rather have a candidate who delivers equity and justice so i just want to pick up on one thing there Obvi hmm. i think obviously we'd all like candidates who deliver equity and justice so i think that's true but i think to say color and gender is irrelevant hmm. uh, i don't think that's i don't think that is right uh, i think you know for for you know as you grow up um and you have your views hmm. uh, and you're you're looking at politics and you and you think, okay, well, um, these are the policies I believe in, and you want people who represent you, and th that becomes a thing. But mm. I think, you know, th that's not how the world works. And I think, you know, I've got two very young kids, three and a half year old daughter, four month old 
uh, a four-month-old um, son, uh, the, you know, as they grow up, they won't know anything about politics. But what they will know is that there's a female, if there's a female prime minister, that if you are a woman, you can hold the highest office sure. in the world. Then that and, and in the and, world, in, in the, <laughs> yeah, in the world, well, greatest, very, country, very greatest country in the greatest world, greatest job in the world, Great, greatest country in the world. <laughs> um, you know, she will, she will think that. And the same with mm. if there is an ethnic minority prime minister, kids around the country, regardless of their politics, are going to say, do you know what? There's nothing stopping me in this uh, world from becoming now that might not actually be true right because you know that individual may come from you know uh, a certain back privileged background and therefore had certain at routes and access to getting that job but to that five-year-old boy yeah. you're giving that five-year-old boy the dream the belief you don't need you know that's what you want that's what you want for all of society to look up and go i can make it into any position in this country they can yep. work out later that it's not true. But, Absolutely. You know, I, I that think, that, that yeah. belief is really important. Yeah, I, I agree, Hamza. And I, I think the, you know, identity politics it, um, is inherently important for the reason you're explaining. And I think, you know, it is about demonstrating accessibility. Um, and, you know, for some folks who, who wouldn't fully always follow the politics or the policies, um, it's just about having uh, somebody from a BAME background and being able to associate um, that's with that success. So I, I do agree with that. Um, and I think we're, we're often conflating what it means politically um, and what it means socially for, to have, um, you know, a, a BAME leader. Um, but I think, you know, to, to go back to the honesty and, and integrity point, um, you know, I think we've... <coughs> Rishi's, Rishi's demonstrated in, in areas as well, you know, managing uh, COVID and managing the economy. You know, I think... He, he tried to demonstrate a lot of honesty and transparency when he was uh, setting those policies. And I think, you know, even when Boris was coming out and, and setting policies, uh, you saw Rishi trying to demonstrate some kind of impartiality. Um, and so he did quickly realise that his uh, route to success was going to be, uh, was resting on th traits like honesty and integrity, very much so because... Um, the, the impression in the public was that Boris was failing in those areas. Um, mm. And I, mean, I don't know what you guys think about how Boris uh, w was exited, but I think it was, you know, a long time coming. Uh, you know, he, he had demonstrated in a lot of areas that he, he didn't have any honesty or integrity, which I think is so important for a leader. I mean, look, ultimately he wanted to have his uh, wedding in Downing Street, so I think that's yeah. what he wanted to <laughs> survive for. So, yeah. you know, love is the cause, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. what he did it for. But no, no I mean, it was, I mean, it was becoming embarrassing yeah. for the country, I think, the way he was carrying on. And, uh, you know, he's a very gregarious character. And I think the British public kind of warmed to having, you know, Basil Fawlty in terms, you know, in, in running the country. Yeah. Because... They like characters. That's what we talked about earlier, right? Yeah. That's what you kind of uh, elect. You want someone who, you know, has um, a view, a perspective, carries themselves in a certain way. And it's very British to be that kind of bumbling fool. Yeah. Uh, but the thing was, he was bumbling from scandal to scandal to scandal. And it just become every time the stakes were raised, first it was, you know, the, the party gate. Yeah. But then I think the, the straw that broke the camel's back was, yep. um, you know, the... The candidacy of the MP that he pushed, correct? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, um, Boris was aware of um, criminal allegations against 
his chief whip. Uh, mm. Sorry, I think it's assistant chief whip. Yeah. And um, despite that information, knowing that information, he promoted that individual, um, which obviously raised the question of integrity. Um, and I think in a time where identity politics, so women in politics or BAME individuals in politics is so important, um, you cannot lack integrity in those areas, right? When it comes to, you know, things like sexual harassment Absolutely. or gender issues or BAME issues. Yeah. Uh, and Boris has at one point or another, you know, failed in all of those areas. And the most recent was obviously this, um, you know, promoting that individual. So mm. I think, you know, it, it's, uh, and, and it's also, uh, you know, it's slightly worrying that if somebody from a young age sets out to be prime minister, mm. right? And that's facilitated every step of the way. It really begins to raise questions around representative democracy. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's that's that's the hard part in in, in this whole scenario is that you know being representative at the same time. But then the, the candidate this party put forward. I mean, his like you said, his goal was always since becoming mayor of London was to get to this position. You know, and he did whatever he did, trampled right the way through Theresa May, etc., yep. to get where he is. And he was very bloody minded to stay in the job, but you know the integrity of you know the party and the country was at stake and i think that's the point that it got to and it was totally untenable yeah absolutely yeah i think that's right i mean, <clears throat> I, mean I think whatever is is pretty clear that he was you know they're not allowed to say the word in the house of commons are they but boris johnson's a habitual liar i mean he just can't mm. help himself in almost any situation he'll just say whatever the easiest thing is in that situation to get him out of uh, trouble and kind of nine times out of ten it's just a blatant lie mm. uh, and that comes out you know um, sometimes very quickly sometimes it takes a bit longer but that's basically what he said he doesn't know what's going on and he just gives answers that are the easiest route to keeping people happy in that in that situation and then he goes off and realizes oh it might be something else and that just kept happening um and so it was always a matter of time i guess until he was until he was found out and that's you know <laughs> that is what happened but i think he's you know he's at one end of the spectrum isn't he he's kind of he's he's way out there in terms of as we said kind of uber charismatic individual but with no understanding of detail and a habitual liar and then you have more interesting questions i think around um uh, some of the criticism around someone like keir starmer who presents himself as um you know a guy of great uh, integrity who um is an extremely honest person this is what he'll say and puts himself on that pedestal but then if you speak to people on the you know in the left wing of the labor party they'll say well this guy's just as cynical as any other politician he was elected labor leader under uh, under a manifesto that was pretty left wing mm. and as soon as he's in office actually all you've seen for the last you know 2 years is him moves um uh, steadily to the center get rid of most of those policies that he ran on most people would say or those of the left of the party would probably say that was uh, back 2 years ago in order to become Labour Party leader, that was just a cynical attempt to win over the votes of members. Mm. But he had no intention of ever actually putting forward those policies as leader. So what, what, what do you say about someone like him mm. who looks more integrity, looks like he has someone more integrity, speaks with integrity, speaks about honesty, but actually he's you know changed his views on a whole load of things in order to get elected and be electable? 
He has, but then I think there, there's there's no real sort of um, we talked about character and you know you know someone who's memorable. He's not really that, and I, I think that's why he's not in the public's mind uh, as much, you know. And that's why we talked about you know obviously there's no polls to be run at this time, but you know yeah. I, I wouldn't think that um, how, how close Labour are or aren't. But um, well, it's it's a it's a good point, Charles, and I think you know Jeremy Corbyn, um, hmm. I think lacked charisma. Right, he 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 wasn't as polished and well put together as yeah. uh, some of the leaders you see uh, yeah, from yeah. the Conservative Party. He's a weathered um, MP, essentially, he's a, he's a right? MP. But yeah, um, but and and that's for me, you know, uh, that was the dead giveaway that mm. we will always go for charisma, you know, folks who make yeah, us look good yeah, on the yeah, international absolutely. stage, yeah, and um, and I'd I'd argue honesty and integrity. You know, based off of uh, Hamza's point, you know, where you have to chop and change policies, it's such an elusive trait that you're, can, you know, looking for in a politician. Yeah. It's a very difficult thing to pin. And so you are left with kind of, okay, can I work out if this individual is doing things in good faith, right? Are, you know, do they have the right intention when mm. they speak about a policy? Are they trying to do, you know, and you're consistently trying to discern that when you're observing them and listening to them in interviews. Um, and so I, I would argue it's it's a it's now become a personal personal judgment call uh, of of the individual based on your uh, uh, relationship with them through media rather than a real observation on that individual's personality and their policies. Okay, I, I understand your point and I take it on board and I think you're talking from a very idealistic perspective of what we want in people. Yeah. But let's look at it the other way around. We had a character who's in charge of the country, highest station in the country, and he was lying, essentially. Now, is that a person who's perhaps more representative of the society that we live in and the people we are now than the other way around. Are we happy to self-sustain for our own benefits to get through things, tell a few lies, do a little bit? Because let's let's face it, when you're in lockdown and these sort of things, people were meeting. Those yeah. things were happening. Certain people really stuck by the rules and you feel for people when they saw people bereaved and being passed away and they weren't able to say final goodbyes that's heart-wrenching yeah but at the same time there's an element in society which is like if i can get away with it i'm gonna get away with it and i'm gonna do x y and z perhaps boris johnson is representative of the people that we as a society now are in the uk yeah it's a great observation and you know i think um i was i was speaking with a colleague recently and you know we were saying how uh, there are political systems in the world that you can observe that we can take lessons from. So, you mm. know, I know we always talk about the Nordic countries and I don't want to make them the kind of beacon of like idealist, like idealistic politics, but I think being qualified for the job, and I think yeah. Hamza was talking about this earlier as well in, in terms of experience, is so important, right? So, you know, being a career politician mm. uh, who's spanning several departments, health, education, economy, whatever, mm. as opposed to coming from that background so for example in in some of the nordic countries the health minister is a doctor who's you know worked in the industry for 30 yeah. 40 yeah, years yeah, absolutely. same with education it will be a former head teacher yeah. and it's structured in that way so they don't have things uh, you know they don't have career politicians they kind of have folks who get to the end of their careers and kind of fall into 
into yeah, into you know, public life. Yeah, exactly, yeah. into public life. And mm. you know, that that seems to be the kind of natural way to to build great leaders. It it appears. I'm sure it has a ton of flaws, but I think this model of career politicians and it spans to labor as well it spans to the left it's not exclusive to the right sure um you know it's it's problematic um and you know it's very difficult to look at honesty and integrity if you aren't able to assess that on the basis of qualification very valid point very valid point um but then i think the game of politics is also the the thing we have to look at because obviously like we we talk here on the voice of islam and we, you know in terms of islam we have a spiritual leader and that's um in terms of Ahmadiyat obviously his holiness um hazrat mizam mashur ahmad the the leader of the community um and in terms of islam broadly speaking the holy prophet um is our spiritual guide and leader as well right um so we have an example and i think what happens there is because they only answer to the almighty to god you know there's there's not there's no real reason for them to to pander yeah for populism exactly to say the right things to what people want to hear they'll say the right things guided by a moral compass whereas i think in politics you have to curry favor that's the only way you'll survive yeah doesn't matter how good you are yeah yeah, I mean that's the answer. That, that that that's the that's the that's the problem. That's the fundamental flaw in the game, isn't it? You got to you've got to get people on your side in order to retain power. Mm. Um, now, I guess some people would say you, the best way to retain power is to sometimes say the difficult thing, but people respect it. And some people would say, you know, you retain power through really, uh, you know, efficient good governance because people then recognize actually you're doing a good job i might not you know always like what you're doing but actually things are running pretty well so we'll give you you know more time or whatever um but it's really difficult and i think there's always you know there's always judgment calls there about uh and politicians constantly doing that judgment calls about whether is this the right moment to you know be be seen to be strong and principled or is this the yeah. right moment to actually just you know come in and do uh, and say whatever he, what he wants to hear mm. and to some extent it's perfectly summed up by Rishi Sunak's yeah. leadership campaign at the moment where he's decided he needs to say the thing that members don't really want to hear about not giving them tax cuts now so yes. he's decided actually yeah. he's going to make this the bit of principle and I'm going to say no tax cuts yep. and I'm going to say inflation's the most important thing. Yeah, That's yeah, what we're yeah. going to do. Yep. But then he recognises at the same time and actually to be fair, I don't know if this is actually his view or not, but he clearly recognises at the same time that in itself is not going to get him the votes of the members and yeah. able to actually hold high office. So what does he need to do? He's got to say he's got to be really strong on immigration Yep. He has to. So he's gone, do you know what? I've got to go really hard on immigration. So what shall I say? I'm going to say that I love the Rwanda policy. Yeah. And I'm going to get it done. And yep. he's going to say, I'm going to bring down uncontrolled immigration. Yeah. Because he's got to go hard on something else. So it's perfectly... So he's pandering to the right of the party. Is that yeah. what you're saying? He's, he's pandering to the right of the party because the right of the party are the members. Not, not and the it, right, the and white. They, uh, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'd say, I'm going to say the right of the party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, they've, they're the ones who are either going to decide whether he's going to be prime minister or not. And so therefore he goes, you know, on those policies, I've got to throw them something. And that might be, I don't know, it might be that actually on all these things, it's truly what he believes in and all of them. But I'm guessing... He's sat there with his team and gone, 
you know which bits can i move around a bit on which bits do i need to go hard on what do i what area do i need to say something really strong on and which area can i appear to be you know principled and tough and he's made those calls i mean again politics does stir up opinion so we've had more messages come in as we're talking um one comment that we've got from a listener is realistically and honestly there are no leaders left in the world in fact putin wrongly or rightly is a leader angela merkel was a leader um there is i mean another comment from another listener part of the problem in the uk and western democracies is that the small groups have a lot of power and can push certain agendas boris johnson and the current government will continue to do that media especially a right-wing media has a lot of pull even labor struggle to be honest as they have to toe uh, to public or to public direction but uh, yeah. the current state of democracy is that it's all malleable very difficult to be principled in this environment so there is a lot of stirred up opinion yep. you know um, in this but um yeah and i think you know it, it, there's <laughs> folks think that you know in some cases it might be the rise of the lib dems as well and it's worth saying as well that liz liz, liz trust is a former lib dem and i think you know to hamza's point I, brexit's a big one right uh, how we deliver brexit and i think um you know rishi's but you know he's got he's doubled down on that he's doubled down on immigration um so and and he's more than qualified and competent to do the job and so you're right you you know you're having to do all of these things to to curry favor right mm. and and i don't believe that he believes in some of these policies and it's why as you said it's why the job of a, a political leader is so different to um uh, let's say the leader of a business or the leader of another organization because yeah. in, that, in some respects for the, to those audiences you can uh, deliver tough messages you're not reliant on their support for you to continue in, absolutely in that job yep. the only thing that keeps you in that job is whether that business or organization is you know seen to be doing well and is successful right uh, and so those are the things that you could do now obviously better leaders will bring their people with them and that gives them a better chance of being successful but they're not you know constantly trying to play to different audiences to get them on i mean the classic example here is as i said first they needed the the the, the the Tory leaders needed to say whatever they needed to say to get into this final two. And to, for that, they were playing to Tory MPs who have a specific view and they needed to get their vote. So they have to say things that get to those their, their support. Now they have to pivot to get the support of the members to become prime minister. And as soon as one of them's done that, they have to pivot to say something different to get the support of the wider public. Otherwise, they'll lose an election. And so, <laughs> you know, in fairness to a politician, you know, how do you, you know, it's it, it's quite difficult to um, to align all these things. And so, when you come to the situation where, as Zishan said, actually, you're making individual judgments on whether you think someone is doing something in the right faith, yeah. and who knows the answer to that? Really, you 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 know, it's that that's in, that's an impossible question. Yeah. I think um, just picking up on the comment, we talked about re- uh, leadership as well. Um, and His Holiness Azamiza Musur Ahmed, the leader of the Ahmadi uh, Muslim community, he said, whilst worldly leaders have secular goals, uh, he talked about the purpose of Khilafat is to draw the attention of people towards fulfilling each other's rights. It is to instill a spirit amongst Ahmadi Muslims of giving precedence to their faith over all worldly matters. And Khilafat makes every effort to peacefully establish the unity of God in the world. Point being, I think when it turns to politics, there is no end goal other than to maintain or inc- perhaps improve the status quo and to remain in power. Yeah, those are the two th- guidelines, 
and how long those can remain aligned is can be very short and sweet. Yeah. And I think, you know, that it's interesting because the dynamics between good governance and power are in like, you know, you could argue that having lots of power isn't conducive to good governance. Mm. Right. But then there is examples of it, of dictatorships being amazing countries yeah. right so it's 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 very tricky to to work out actually it might seem very obvious you know what the traits for a good leader should be but it can get very tricky but here's where, what one thing we do know is it's a top-down approach right so mm. if the leaders demonstrate integrity and honor and there's a clear mandate which is followed you know people will will follow that um and it's um it's just a shame we don't have it in our in our political system, at least in the Western Hemisphere. I think, yeah, no, it's 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 a tough it's a tough thing to stay principled. I think ultimately yeah. that that is the hardest thing. And look, if you if you break down the word politics, uh, poly is many, and ticks are bloodsuckers. Yeah, you know, and and that is the nature of that game because that's what it's about. Yeah, the goal is just to stay in power. And there's nothing more to it. But I think. You know, when you compare, are we being unfair in in hoping for these guys to be our moral compass uh, as leaders? Because when you look at successful people, let's let's talk about um, successful leaders in business as an example, or successful leaders in sports. Um, few that come to mind: Elon Musk, yeah. as an example. You know, he's we talked about EV and the change in mindsets. Something he's brought about. Yeah, he's brought that about. He's not the most stable guy in certain aspects yep. you know he, he's very open about you know the substances he takes when he tweets yep. those types of things yep. um, you know he's I mean I sp spoke recently about workforce cuts and he said yeah if you think working from home is a thing you're not going to be working for me you know there are lines and he talks about it but he delivers ultimately right he's not only a car company, but he's talking about, you know, sustainable power, gigafactories. Yeah, he's SpaceX. working SpaceX. He's working on a different mindset. Yeah. Uh, you look at someone like um, football wise, you look at uh, two two different characters, but leadership. Let me give you three three people from sport. Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson, one of the most successful people in this country in terms of footballing terms. No nonsense approach. Yeah. You do not um go against my will yeah i will this is what i set out a policy and if you don't agree off you go yeah then you get someone slightly different who's a bit more modern someone like pep guardiola very successful man city manager when you see it pure confidence to his players yeah it's so much that you do this obviously there's a parameter let me give you a structure to work around yeah but it's about empowerment it's about self-belief it's about confidence and we went back to, and I won't go along the political side, but I'll talk about Imran Khan as a cricket captain and the famous words he used in 1992 when Pakistan won the World Cup is they want you to play like cornered tigers. He wanted to, for them to take off all the press worries and all of those concerns. And he said, look, take it off your back and play with pure freedom. That's brilliant. You know, and I think you get, can successful people like that work in politics? And we talk about Iran Khan we won't go too much into it because it's a bit of a hot potato but I'm just saying that sometimes those traits don't don't translate yeah. into politics no they don't and I think um, Imran Khan Imran Khan's a good one and he, he's uh, I would argue that he's tried to demonstrate integrity and honesty you know throughout his leadership in, while, while he's while he was Prime Minister of Pakistan um, and 
I think being seen to uh, be tackling issues like corruption mm-hmm. um, or dishonesty or um, you know politicians behaving in, in kind of silly ways um, it, it lends to you being a good leader but like um, w- with Sir Alex Ferguson for example you know yeah. it was being super strict and like yeah, you say yeah, yeah. no nonsense kind of policy right yeah. so then in that regard you could argue someone like I don't know Pretty Patel would be an amazing leader right? wow but uh, <laughs> but then I don't agree with that never heard that <laughs> one before so, just so Pretty Patel is the Alex Ferguson yeah. of for you, politics yeah well I mean <laughs> she, she, she is she, I mean she essentially has this kind of you know I won't compromise on any of my conservative beliefs and you know d- uh, very different to Rishi in that sense that Rishi gives off this impression where he's very pragmatic and efficient in policy and he's he's willing to reposition and think about his strategy whereas Priti's the complete opposite to me right mm. and she really demonstrates um, a, a, like you say no nonsense strict conservative belief approach and she's got her policies um, and I think you're you're seeing that it's actually folks like Rishi, you know, folks who are a bit more pragmatic, mm. a bit looser with their beliefs, who probably are stronger leaders. Perhaps. I mean, uh, we have, in fact, got a caller. Um, we welcome Saf Amadi to the show. Saf, are you online? Assalamualaikum. Well, welcome to the show. Um, obviously, Saf is a co-presenter here. Uh, couldn't make it today because of family commitments, which is good uh, to see the priority. I was desperate to be part but, but of the But obviously, you <laughs> know, some, something's got his blood boiling. <laughs> and we hope it's not your kids. Tell us what the issue is, Saf. No, no, I just wanted to say, thank you. it was a great show. I think a uh, conversation um, uh, is, uh, is really good. I think uh, you, you've all brought up really really important points i think one thing i actually just wanted to mention just because i've been uh hearing i think when you talk about boris johnson and i think about even when you talk about the current crop um it's all been about electability really it's um and you know even boris johnson i mean everyone knew the flaws of his character throughout the whole period of time ultimately i mean what actually drew him out was his electability i think it was really the fact that he had lost those two by-elections by such a clear margin that um, started making a lot of the Tory MPs, you know, more concerned about their jobs, which ultimately they've sort of pushed him aside and now are considering the next. And the next person, I think you have very, I'll, I'll be very honest, I mean, put my cards on the table. I think they're both very weak candidates in their own way. Um, and uh, I <clears throat> I worry, I, you know, if I was a Tory right now, I would be very worried uh, as to where they were going. But again, you actually, like, you actually have to, I would say the the main reason why I would be worried is there are no principles. And it goes back to what you've been sort of discussing. I don't think there has been any real policy guidelines. If you actually take, for example, and, you know, we, we talk about just talk about people like Elon Musk. If you actually take your ultimate guide, which is the Holy Prophet, and yeah. if you look at, for example, the Charter of Medina, when he actually went, the people, you know, he was looking not just, he was looking over people with no beliefs, he was looking with people with polytheist uh, polytheist, uh, beliefs, Mm -hmm. the Jewish population, the Christian population, and they all chose him. They chose him as the ultimate arbiter, right? And now that's something that we don't even understand in our concept nowadays of democracy, of giving one person all power to make, you know, to make the ultimate decisions. Mm. But he was so well known for being trustworthy for being, you know, righteous, for being, you know, like for having all of the traits of someone that would be fair and just, that they gave him that power willingly. 
Mm. It was always something that was done willingly. That the, and he bought people. And, you know, if you actually look at a lot of Hadiths, for example, he was also very stern at points, and he was also very soft at other points. You know, he, he always had to use a judgment. So the whole idea that you have to be like Sir Alex Ferguson to sort of be strong to get a point across, mm. you can be strong. You don't necessarily have to be strong. You Sometimes you, 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 you need to be strong in certain uh, things. But if you have... If you have the trust of your people, you can be whichever way you like. I think there came a point where Alex Ferguson probably was in a way that no matter what he said, the team would follow because they had so much trust in his ability as a manager that they would do it nonetheless. Mm, and yeah. I think now you have a case, like for example, with Boris Johnson, that was never the case. I actually would go yeah. as far as, I don't think there was ever a situation where he commanded that much respect that no matter what he said, people went along with. I think there was always raising of eyebrows every time any kind of policy. I think Priti Patel, unfortunately for me, I think even with this Rwanda policy, it's not been very popular. It's been popular with a certain uh, part of society, um, and that's the base that they're going for. But why, in a more wider fashion, it's not very popular. People don't like it. People don't go al- along with it. And she's having to be stern to the point of, and I, I use this word in a very loose uh, way, but it's almost fascistic in its sort of approach. It's mm. like, this is what we're doing, whether you like it or not, and I'm going uh, going ahead with it. I agree. And I think that that is a problem, you see? And I actually believe that that's yeah. where the problem lies with this current state of affairs. And I actually worry about the state of democracy. I think people are becoming a lot more polarized, be that because of social media, be, be that because of, you know, like whatever, uh, however we sort of consume our media nowadays. I also think that there is a certain part of me, uh, the media which is very, very pushy on its specific agenda, and people uh, and politicians now kowtow to what they've been sort of asked to do, rather than you know, like they, they they sort of push an agenda because they know that they have to do that because certain papers are going to push a certain agenda that they have to follow follow thing. And I think that there is a real breakdown, unfortunately, for me at the moment with the current state of affairs and with the current state of democracy. I know you've had a lot of conversation about whether someone's experienced or not. I think the problem with the experience is you end up being a lot more experienced into what people ask you to do and push a certain agenda yeah. and how you, mm. how you can communicate that in a, in, in, a, in a good way rather than the principles that you actually have to offer. Like Zishan was saying, I think with Jeremy Corbyn, there was a lot of principle there. I actually I thought he was a weak leader for other reasons. But yes, you have to agree that there was a lot of principles, and I think he tried to push his principles across, and ultimately he did fail in doing so. He couldn't convince the public that um, doing so. I actually would go as far as saying people like Kemi Badenov. I don't agree with a single thing she says. I don't even think. But I think there was a principle which she was trying to push. Um, whether it was right or wrong is a completely different point of view. But And I have a different point of view. But I think people liked the idea was because it was a principle and something that she could push, and she, you know, and she was quite forceful with that opinion. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, that's where I am with it, and I, I think um, it was just a point that I wanted to make because um, I think, um, uh, especially when you, you sort of bring it to back to sort of the religious aspect of it, that there is a reason why you know we use the Holy uh, Holy Prophet Sallallahu as a guide because the, the the greatest thing that he ever did was he he, he command he commanded the respect of people, mm. not by not by pushing it over on people. It was it was a natural thing that people saw his um, saw his character um, and 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 made that and made that point straight away. You know that they, they they joined the dots almost immediately. That this guy this guy is is the guy that will you know like that 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 we can trust to make the right judgment. Yeah. 
Saf, thank you for dialing in today. We very much appreciate Thanks. it and we look forward to seeing you in the studio but some very valid points made. Thank you for joining the show today. Thanks. So, I mean, and some really great points there. And, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of add to it and say I think uh, some of us work in financial services and, you know, in, in financial services uh, when it comes to things like uh, private equity or mergers and acquisitions or investment banking, yeah. um, if you go to these firms they will have teams of 10 to 20 people doing due diligence on integrity, mm. right? Business integrity uh, and board integrity. And that is the marker of a successful business and a successful leadership for a business as well. So mm. I think, you know, the importance of integrity um, and how that, you know, to Saf's point, how that fits into a democratic model is um, deeply broken at the moment. Yeah, I think there is a, there's a big disconnect um, in in that regard, in in particular. And I think we have a little bit as society, and that's what, that was my point that I brought up earlier: is are these leaders um, personifying who we are as you know societal identity now? You know, our moral compass is perhaps not what it used to be. You know, maybe thirty, forty years prior. You know, things have changed. The society would become perhaps more vocal, perhaps more open about things. And that concept of, uh, you know, especially now we talk about polarised, very open about what their views are and that's what we want. It doesn't matter how, sometimes how sectarian or even racist it, it may be, but that's what we want. Yeah. Is that right? You know, and, and I think that's where the problem is coming because those are, I mean, Trump is an example of that. Yeah, Trump yep. is, an, is an outright exactly. example of that. And the talk is he will get elected should he run and be alive yep. the next time. You know, the American American election comes around. You got you got two, you know, um, you know, leaders potentially on that side who are, you know, they're they're the wrong side of youth. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's in, uh, and I think you know, it's how how do you how do you protect yourself in these political environments? As uh, I don't know about protection, but I mean, I think what people's protection. The worry is, I went across to. Uh, the states back end of last year um, and then I was talking to uh, some people from the states uh, for work and what have you and they said actually would Putin have done this to the world if Trump was in power and the resounding answer is no that's what people genuinely believe and that's why people will potentially who would have never dreamt of voting someone like Trump into power are considering doing that in the next election yeah I mean it's interesting I mean I would argue that Putin in Putin's invasion of Ukraine is heavily tied to NATO now. Whether you know which leader was was in role for you know in the USA would impact that. I'm not sure, but I you know look. I think when political times are so turbulent, you know, and, and you're losing faith in the system, I think you know for myself, it's, it's important to have role models with integrity. You mm -hmm. know, uh, interestingly, we're here today. You know, I always found that in the Jamaat. You know, we're doing you know, coming to Ijtimaas, you know, and I always had strong role models, you know, demonstrating what honesty and integrity was sure, to me. And, sure. I, you know, I think that's really important is, you know, when when you're seeing something prevail in politics is you, you call it out. And, you know, at a local community level, you make sure that you're not, you know, doing the same thing. Yeah, no, I think I think that's very valid. And I think that's something that that's why I think that the faith side of things is is very different. Um, in terms of and applying that to politics, sometimes I just don't know if they go together anymore. Yeah, they've they've just become so far removed. Um, you know, divine guidance is something that 
um, you know, we've talked about we talked about the Holy Prophet and his his leadership um, and the way he was. It was on his traits that that even minorities put him in place, you know, to make those judgment calls and what have you. And it's that I think is something which is obviously was something that that you know God Almighty had promised the world that there's a divine guidance in leadership. And obviously, we believe in our trait um, as the Ahmadi Muslim community that the promised Messiah. Uh, was was to come as a leader to revive the faith, which would have deteriorated post, you know, the Holy Prophet's um, the demise, and there would come a time period where um, the sects would be, um, you know, like shoes. Though you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but one would stand out. So, therefore, we believe that concept of leadership. And I think when it comes Islamically speaking, I mean, if you look across the world and you compare that to the the leadership that. And the obedience that we show the Khalifa of the time, you know, His Holiness Hazrat that, you know, we have one leader, we have a voice, and that person sets policy. He's your guide in terms of um, morality and and having a living, breathing relationship with 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 God. And I think um, that's something that's lacking everywhere else. Yeah. Because how many people? I mean, even in this country, I I have a lot of friends who are from different sects of Islam, and you know. Small example when it comes to Ramadan, oh guys, you know how's you know we'll talk about it. Oh, what time do you get up? Our mosque says three o'clock in the morning. Our mosque says two o'clock in the morning because there's one strand of sun at that time. And yeah. It's like, mate, we live within you know twenty miles of one another, man. How can it be like such it's a so t- different, different you know geographical location? Your sun ain't different to mine. Yeah, but that I think is the problem when you don't have leadership and you have people grappling. Yeah, for power or to be heard, or I'm that person that went to the extreme of you know what people say Islamically is there. But I think you know the middle ground that the Holy Prophet has talked about, you know, and and the one that obviously His Holiness uh, has always taught us and guided us is you know that you know you do things, you know, there's no compulsion in religion, but religion is your guide. Yeah, um, but it's. Yeah, I mean those leadership qualities that I've experienced and seen over time. It's just when, when things are are conducted in in a calm, consistent uh, manner, then you I, I feel you take it on board. You don't get pulled in by yeah, you know, just you know, verbosity or you know the way something's delivered. Of course, yeah. there are times when passion and, and these things they they ignite something within you, um, and you want to follow. And I think there are times when I've seen that and heard that in not only just His Holiness's um, sermons, but obviously in the previous caliphs as well. Because yep. I think times have been different, and they require different, um, you know, messages. Yeah, um, that's it's so interesting. Because then you know, and it's you almost then have a, a bond with honesty and integrity. You know, you, you if you experience it in that way, yeah, and you're inclined to behave in that way right when when you know that you can um rely on a community you know led you know in an honest way yeah. with honest values you yeah. know you, you you it 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 kind of um radiates strength and you're attracted to that um so it's you know it's some, really important you know something someone shared with me uh, and it was about um um, the acceptance of uh, Khilafat and um, the fourth successor from the promise uh, from the promise of His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Tahir Ahmed, who was the leader of the um, uh, Ahmadi community. Um, he was a very um, 
iconic leader you know in the way he spoke his his charisma it really you know it, it especially us i think growing up in this country at that time as children you 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 saw the caliph in in, in you know in a different way perhaps yeah. growing up and you have a different attachment and um when there's a change of god it's it's sometimes hard for certain people to accept yeah um because they were so used to uh, you know the characteristics of a previous leader yeah and then when another leader comes although we would say he's of, with the same moral compass with the same guides yeah. those things are there but the the comment that Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed made um was that uh, about the next khalifa and obviously I don't quote me word for word but no, his course. message was that um the next khalifa will come and when he was talking to the people he said you may not accept him but Allah will yeah that for me was uh, a, a very very powerful comment yeah and it just goes to show you we've been talking about politics and populism and how you have to curry favor to stay in yeah. you know in place and what have you and there i think the divineness yeah just and, takes it to a different and place. that's it isn't it because i think if you if you go to any like when i when i went to university and if you go to any good lecture about philosophy economics or history or you know these important yeah. subjects um there's somebody who's giving you the idea and then you know explaining at length you know why you should believe in that idea right yeah and they do it in a very very sophisticated touching way mm-hmm. and we're you know if if you know we were lucky enough as amdis to be exposed to that from a super young age by attending khutbas and sermons yes, yes. right we were essentially attending highly academic sophisticated lectures mm. on things like philosophy economics history um and you know that contributes to to honesty and integrity as well so you can argue that you know faith and and you know and, and the importance of honesty and integrity is really intertwined in that way yeah no absolutely and the the hard part is to, is to bring that into politics but you made you made a very valid point about that want to be honest yeah because it's harder to be honest and that's i think what we've seen especially with you know Boris Johnson and all those sort of things it's easier and in society it's easier to take the shortcut cover it up don't do the hard route of honesty and explaining yourself and what have you just cover it off just lie when necessary yeah get through it carry on you can be honest later on yeah that that's literally i think what you know we have a society which is used to being delivered short termism it's in our hands credit is in our hands we see something now and it's like oh no i want that tomorrow there's a sense of almost entitlement i'll pay it back later on yeah but the the repercussions aren't thought of but that inspiration to want to be honest i think can only come from a place where you have spiritual guidance i don't think it could be done through politics anymore unfortunately yeah i agree um and you know and also what are the consequences of being dishonest right um and i think if if you're taught from a young age to be honest and you know for various reasons you know for social reasons for faith reasons mm. then you know it's it's very difficult to be dishonest but if you if you and to go back to what everything we've spoken about today mm. if if it's a lifetime of politics then it's it's you know especially in this it's exclusive to this country you know i don't know about every country but yeah um it, it you know that's likely then to end in dishonesty Yeah no it's unfortunate <laughs> I mean it may not in dishonesty but you become compromised yeah and I think like we touched a little bit earlier on uh, the Imran Khan discussion and uh, yeah no it's just you can you know 
as I, I've quoted this before, it's a famous quote um, from Batman. That, you know, <laughs> you you either you know, you stay uh, you know you become the hero, you stay long enough to become the villain. Yeah, and that seemingly is is the run in politics. You know, yeah. and you do change, and you have to, unfortunately, to stay be it stay relevant. Yeah, or to stay in power. And I think that's something that is happens in politics, and it's unfortunate to see. You know, because you know you went from you know someone who was a a motivator. You know, um, you know someone who brought a sporting trophy back home, and one he became the moral compass at some point such that he became the leader of a country and now he's at the back end of it where he's been defamed almost you know yeah um and that i think is the nature of of politics and it's unfortunate that that's how it's become but uh, you know there are other leaders around the world who i've seen over time i mean uh, the new zealand prime minister arden i mean i i thought she was an amazing example yeah especially post the uh christchurch um you know yep. massacre that happened there but the way the humanity the empathy she showed and i'm not just saying that because we're muslims yeah and she showed it to other muslims but it was just just the 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 response the statesmanship and the action that was taken yep. against gun laws and what have you that for me was inspiring yeah absolutely know? um yeah, no, absolutely, and and the respect that she gave throughout that whole process was yeah world renowned, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, let let's hope we end up with a, a an honest prime minister next, and yeah, you know, I think it's exciting times for the leadership. Um, yeah. Hamza, anything to add from your end, my friend? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's. Uh, I, I think I you know I, I I totally agree. I think you know yeah. that integrity and honesty is obviously. It's one of those fun fundamentals that you look you look for in your in your leaders, yeah. Um, and uh, and and you want to you almost want to believe it's there, mm. um, and and you and you hope you know you hope you'll because you want everybody wants their leaders to be you know people that they can aspire to, um, uh, to and look up to, mm. and, and those are, you know such fundamental traits in in terms of people wanting to aspire and, and act like that. So you know it's always what you want. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's an important point. Um, but uh, we'll take a very short break, um, and we'll come back with a smaller, shortened version of our sports section. Please join us after the break. Five core beliefs of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. The number one core belief of Ahmadi Muslims is the same as any other Muslim around the world. And that is the five pillars of Islam. Namely, proclaiming the unity of God, offering five daily prayers, offering financial sacrifice in the form of zakat, fasting in the month of Ramadan, and offering pilgrimage to Mecca, which is Hajj. This is the absolute basic and foundation for any Muslim around the world. The second core belief for Ahmadi Muslims is our belief in the Holy Prophet Muhammad may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him as Khatamun Nabiyyin. We believe him to be the seed of the prophets and the last law-bearing prophet that God Almighty has sent for mankind. We believe him to be the perfect and complete creation. The third core belief for Ahmadi Muslims is our belief in the Holy Quran as a perfect guide for mankind. We believe it to be exactly letter to letter, the same word as was revealed to the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him 1400 years ago. 
A fourth core belief of Ahmadi Muslims is our belief in the Messiah and Mahdi. Now the majority of Muslims around the world, they also believe in this concept of the Messiah and Mahdi. But this is where us Ahmadi Muslims have the upper hand. We believe that the Messiah and Mahdi that was prophesied by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that very Messiah and Mahdi has come. We believe him to be Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, may peace be upon him. In the Ahadith, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has given the Messiah and Mahdi the status of a prophet. And we believe that the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, has come for the revival of Islam and to re-establish a strong connection between creation and the Creator. A fifth core belief for Ahmadi Muslims is our belief in Khilafat, in successorship. So just as after the demise of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, there was Khilafat, there was successorship, in exactly the same way after the demise of the promised Messiah, may peace be upon him, God Almighty once again gifted Islam with Khilafat, with successorship. The Ahmadiyya Khilafat was established after the demise of the promised Messiah and has been established for well over a hundred years. We are now in the era of the fifth Caliph, who is Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad. The mission of the Ahmadiyya Khulafa, of the Ahmadiyya Caliphs, is to continue to preach and spread the truthful and peaceful teachings of Islam around the world. These are the five core beliefs of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Good morning and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. It's uh, 23rd of July, bright and sunny here in London, and uh, we've had an um, interactive uh, day today. A lot of messages and a call in as well um, on leadership and and politics, and I think that's, yeah, it's clearly a uh, subject that uh, yeah. you know touched touched a few people. Indeed, Got, it's nice. It's yeah, nice it's good. To, you know, it's, we want to we want to be engaged. We want to uh, you know speak about what's on people's minds. Yeah, absolutely, and obviously that has been at the forefront of people. I mean, you know, a cat has nine lives. You know, I think Boris would hit number what's 10. the other one. They call him the greasy piglet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not very halal. Um, but um, yeah, no, of course. I mean, I think, you know, politics and religion are two things that, that and sport are the three things I think that always, uh, you know, engage people. And uh, obviously, we've, uh, you know, touched a nerve with some people today, which is interesting. It's good that we have the discussions and the ideals that we talk about what's plausible, what's not. And, uh, you know, I think it's been So we ticked off day. two of those three taboo subjects. Now, now we yeah, need to take on the on third. Sport. Yeah, absolutely. So, as obviously, um, uh, sports wise, it's quiet. I think, um, obviously, with football season still to, to start in a couple of weeks' time now, um, interesting stuff is obviously transfers and what have you. Uh, Manchester United have got a new manager in place. Um, you know, he's the fifth coming of uh, God knows what. Um, you know, uh, it's it's a rebuild yet again for Manchester United. Um, but I think this year, with the acquisition of um, Haaland, I think Manchester City will be absolutely the team to beat. I mean, he's won leagues without a striker. Now he's actually got a striker. What could happen? I thought you were going to say uh, with Phillips. With Phillips, I know Phillips is a great footballer, no doubt about it. But I mean, Haaland is. I think it's it's rare in this country that you see potentially a Ballon d'Or candidate come to this country in his early twenties. 
it's rare to I don't think we've ever seen that I mean Cristiano Ronaldo obviously was a Ballon d'Or winner and came here very young but he wasn't a finished product no not at all I mean um, the last couple of seasons no. when he was in, when he was here he was you know he was all just tricks and showboating wasn't he exactly exactly and then uh, he became the player he came but again his peak years probably were at Real Madrid oh, when totally. he went and yeah, won completely. you know four four uh, Champions League trophies in a row towards you know yeah he had what did he, he, I mean he had one amazing season at United at the end I mean sorry mm. he was very good throughout but yeah the one yep. amazing season at the end correct but it still wasn't like a kind of greatest of all time season no. which he then went on to do multiple times at Madrid exactly exactly so it'll be interesting to see how um, I think Haaland is is very well um, adaptable to this league so I, I think he will be a success and I think with a manager like Guardiola it'll be interesting to see how they now perform with a bona fide striker in yeah place. and with a uh, with a with a with a um, re-excited reinvigorated uh, Grealish as well yes indeed I mean he's been very passionate I've seen him around obviously he celebrated very well when they won the league um, but uh, but you know when you're a hundred million uh, pound siling you want to prove something yeah. and I think you know let's see if he has a breakout season that he's threatening because he is a good player um, so I mean they'll be my tip for the premiership again I mean, I would hate to see Liverpool be up there, but you know, it's what it is. I mean, it'll be interesting if Liverpool do. I mean, having lost uh, Sadio Mane, I mean, spent a lot about of money Aquain. on the replacement, didn't they? Yeah, Nuno. So we'll yeah. see how that goes. Um, you know, Man United fans are already, uh, you know, having a pop that he hasn't scored in pre-season, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we'll see how that pans out. But uh, I think what we'll do, obviously, we'll have a more extended sports session next time we have our show. Um, politics really did take up um, the crux of the day but thank you for all the callers and all your comments please join us next week